You're listening to an Empavillion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. This podcast comes to you from our 2020 season. For more, visit our archive at library.empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Okay, I think we see most of the seats filled, so I'll start. Welcome everyone to the 2021 Housing Choices Australia Oswald Barnett Oration. I'm Heather McCallum, the Chair of Housing Choices Australia. Thank you for coming out tonight and joining us on a lovely spring, or autumn I should say, evening and joining us. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are meeting tonight. I would like to pay my respect to their elders, past, present and emerging and also to acknowledge any Aboriginal elders joining us here from other communities this evening. It has been such a long and difficult year for everyone since we last came together in February 2020. Going out in Melbourne is still something we're all getting used to, and that many of you have come tonight demonstrates our collective commitment to such an important cause. COVID-19 has changed a lot of the ways that we do things, and I think being here is a prime example of that. This year we meet in a car park, so who would have thought that 12 months ago? For those who don't know, this summer the Naomi Milgram Foundation and its M Pavilion team weren't able to commission their usual amazing architectural structure in its traditional place opposite Hamer Hall. Faced with no meeting place for its ambitious summer program of events, the M Pavilion applied its boundless energy and ingenuity, and with the support of the City of Melbourne, created this outside-the-box, COVID-safe, reimagined space where Melburnians have been able to gather, showing us that against all odds, life goes on. But I did think it was an unusual twist that um, outside-the-box thinking has ended up with us thinking inside-the-box. <laughs> so I think that's a reflection of how unpredictable the world is. This place has been a hub for Melbourne's cultural, intellectual, music and artistic life since January. A beacon of hope for thousands of people over what has been a difficult summer. I understand they've even held roller discos here and I'm sure our panel is quite pleased that they didn't book, double book the event for the evening. But now tonight, as they've done for the last three years, the M Pavilion has generously made its safe space available for us, to our sector, and to you as we come together for our annual check-in on our collective progress, the challenges, and the opportunities for change. So, how are we doing? Building homes for people in need. Let's face it, because of COVID-19, there is now even more need than ever. The pandemic has been hard on everyone in our community, but this has been hardest on our most vulnerable, including people who struggle to find a place to live and even more particularly for people living in a state of homelessness. By coming together for this event, I'm pleased to say in increasing numbers each year, we're demonstrating our collective desire to keep housing at the top of everyone's agenda in Melbourne and Victoria. We cannot take our foot off the table, off the pedal, nor temper our ambition. There are still not enough safe, affordable and accessible homes to house all Australians, and there must be. That is our task at Housing Choices Australia, our responsibility as a sector, a community, and indeed as a society. <clears throat> we have a lot to get through in the next hour as our expert panel talks through some of these serious issues. And enjoy what will be, and I'm sure, an interesting and stimulating conversation. And please stay on afterwards until 8.30 to catch up with colleagues and enjoy the COVID-safe catering in this slightly unusual but quite lovely setting on a perfect autumn evening. I am delighted now to hand over to my colleague, Housing Choices Managing Director, Michael Lennon. Michael is a well-known and highly respected figure across housing, planning, development, and government sectors in Australia, and is going to double up as panel host tonight. Michael is a relentless advocate for reform, innovation, and progress in good housing for all Australians. And for the next hour, he will lead this year's panel of housing experts as they look back on an extraordinary 12 months in the housing sector in Victoria since we met in February last year, and most importantly, to what lies ahead. Thank you. 
Well, thank you, Heather, and thank you, everyone, for giving up your time this evening. Um, it's my pleasure and privilege to be here. And in these, in these um, initial comments and in any introduction, we, we now get used to acknowledging the original owners of the land where we meet. But we find ourselves in a circumstance where almost for the first time in a generation, we, we might actually be able to give meaning to that in the housing world. So <clears throat> through the big housing build in Victoria, we have a serious opportunity to do something material about Aboriginal disadvantage in the housing space. And with all of your assistance, I, I sincerely hope that we can do that. Um, the, the speaker is giving me feedback and it's not good. Um, okay, I'll get even more red than I usually have. Um, and uh, just by way of housekeeping, I just wanted to say that if any of you had come to the wrong place and, we're, we're, and if you're supposed to be at the garden party at the Melbourne Club, um, if you could use, just leave discreetly and politely, that would be great. Um, on behalf of uh, the housing sector, the housing associations and others in Victoria, um, uh, we, we host the Oswald Barnett oration every year. Now, Oswald Barnett was truly a giant of a human being. And, and many of you know the story. Um, he, he was both, um, he was a missionary man, he was a, a Methodist, he was an accountant by training, and he put his values and his pennies to good work. He believed strongly in a lot of things, and particularly the basic right of everyone to have a decent home. And you all know the story that by his agitation and by his forceful advocacy on behalf of the poor and the underprivileged, he led to a whole series of reforms which saw the formation of the Housing Act, the Housing Commission, and all of the programs that led to the post-war public housing program in Melbourne. He was a beacon of his time, and he's a beacon of light for everyone involved in this space um, at this point in history. So every year, um, when we honour the contribution that Oswald Barnett made, we have to think about what does that mean in contemporary life. A year ago, we canvassed the landscape of housing politics in Victoria, and then we had Minister Richard Wynne, the head of the Property Council at that stage. Um, the head of NIFIC was here from Canberra, the Lord Mayor of Melbourne, Sally Cap, and our, and our own uh, people from our own uh, sector. It was a sparky conversation, very much focused on policy and funding. But look what's happened in the space of 12 months. The key thing now is not only to capture that momentum, but to deliver the promise that's been made. But it is worth quickly listing all of the achievements during this time. So the, the social housing growth funds in Victoria have been completed to date. The big housing build has been assembled and funded. New, new approval processes for projects have been put in place. There have been two actual rounds of NIFIC bond priced funding. The City of Melbourne has produced its own housing strategy. The next round of public housing renewal tenders have been issued and uh, largely uh, are now being completed. And of course, Homs Victoria was put into place. And we discovered that we could, if we had the will, eradicate homelessness, just as they have done in many Scandinavian countries. So during that time, the homeless were relocated temporarily to accommodation across the city. And, uh, and I would also note that during this time, Assemble launched um, a very new build-to-rent uh, build model in Melbourne and elsewhere. So if you worked in the housing sector, this has been a remarkably positive period and one full of promise. So we now have a, a great big bunch of housing and um, uh, policy and platforms in place. And now the only thing we have to do, of course, is deliver. So our oration this year is not a paper. It's short on politics, but long on practice and experience. And it's against that background we have these outstanding people here um, to give us their perspectives on how we're going to achieve the outcomes. So I'd like you to join with me to, uh, to welcome Holmes Victoria CEO Ben Rimmer, Holmes Victoria Chief Development Officer Michelle Morrison, from the City of Melbourne, the Director of City Strategy, Emma Appleton, 
and a live example of the new kind of um, private sector participation in affordable housing. Chris Daff from Assemble, please join with me in welcoming our panel. So, I might uh, begin by asking a kind of direct person to each of them, and uh, it would be unfair to um, put Ben Rimmer in the shoes of Oswald Barnett, so I'll do just that. <laughs> so Ben, I, uh, ben is, a, as many of you know, is a, a hugely experienced um, a public and civic figure. He's worked in central agencies in Victoria and in Canberra. He's been the CEO of the city of Melbourne, and he has taken upon himself um, uh, this enormous task uh, to re-navigate the social and affordable housing landscape in the country. Um, so for the audience, as a way of beginning, Ben, tell us um, what went through your mind in the formations of Homes Victoria and the way in which you hope the institution will work. Thanks, Michael. Um, and uh, can I also start by acknowledging traditional owners of the land on which we're meeting? Uh, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the very vibrant city that's been built on their, on their lands um, uh, that were never ceded. Um, great question. Um, so I guess for me, Homes Victoria is about bringing together three separate things. One is we manage the the public housing asset on behalf of the people of Victoria and the public housing tenancies and uh, our relationships with public housing tenants are central to who we are and what we do. And uh, that's one of the three things that um, really brings us together. Then on top of that we have uh, a role in driving growth and development in the broader social housing sector um, through our relationships and our partnerships with the community housing sector and through using our own assets to get an even better outcome for, um, for um, the people of Victoria, more housing for more Victorians, as it says on the sticker. Um, the third thing that we're doing, and this takes us into territory that Chris knows well, is the government has asked us to invest in affordable housing. And the reason uh, why that has happened is because, first of all, we want to create great communities. We want to create communities that have a mixture of tenure types, a mixture of, mixture of dwelling styles, a mixture of, um, uh, of, of organisations involved. Secondly, it was pure economic stimulus in the middle of an economic crisis. And thirdly, I think um, the, the government saw an affordable housing sector that was doing some good work and people like Chris doing really great work, uh, but that wasn't delivering enough uh, of the right kind of product quickly enough. There was lots of talk, um, but less delivery of real new housing. And uh, so a really strong sense that they wanted to uh, put that into the mix as well. So if you put all of that together, Homes Victoria is a new team, a new agency, uh, but built on very, um, very solid foundations from Oswald Barnett on. And we don't forget any of that heritage. We don't forget any of that obligation to uh, to current tenants, to uh, to current um, to people who are currently waiting on the uh, on the housing waiting list, uh, but we're also taking um, the next steps in terms of driving growth and development and new models of thinking. And for me, um, the real test of this initiative is um, not so much whether we deliver the 12,000 homes because we will do that. In fact, we'll deliver more like 15,000, 16,000 homes over the next. Uh, four years. Uh, the test isn't whether we'll deliver those. The test is whether we, working together, working with everyone in this room, to be frank, uh, build a movement that actually creates a permanent change in the way we think about social housing in Victoria. And that's um, that's the government's ambition. They're not they're not in this just for the immediate sugar hit of economic stimulus, if I can put it like that. They are in this because they uh, believe in a significantly enhanced role for social housing going forwards, uh, one that complements their work on family violence, that complements their work on mental health, that complements their work on precinct development, and that brings it all together into a sustainable system 
of management of social housing for the long, the long term. Uh, well done. Well said, um, Ben. And I think many people will be hugely encouraged by the sense in which you're, you're making systemic reform, that the ambition is bigger than the number. It's a, a different way of, um, of, of managing society. Um, Ben has populated the new agency um, not only with a number of, um, of very experienced staff from the Director of Housing's office, but he's also recruited significant new people and um, people who um, have fresh eyes and fresh thinking into the space. And so um, Luc Boucher, whom uh, I've been working with, who's worked in policy and in NDIS, and, um, and Hayley Parks and uh, Michael Smith and others who know the sector very well. Uh, but Michelle, we are absolutely delighted and enthused about your participation. Um, Michelle Morrison has a, a, a long history in complex projects and project delivery, including public-private um, funded uh, projects, and before this had seven years with uh, Capella Finance. Uh, so Michelle, um, I guess we are intrigued as well as delighted that you took up this role, given the complexity of the project landscape. Can you give us a sense of, of the personal attraction that's in this for you in professional terms? Thanks, Michael. What a great question. Um, I, I, I decided probably a few years ago, quite a few years ago, that I was pretty good at delivering projects and I made a conscious decision that I was only going to work on social infrastructure projects again. And for the last 10, 15 years I've worked in health, the last seven years um, with Capella Capital, which was a fantastic time of my life. I was fortunate enough to be the CEO of the Bendigo Hospital Consortium and, and with the Capella team, the Vespa team and the Bendigo Hospital team, we won every award that you could possibly win. We delivered the project ahead of schedule and really, you know, as a benchmark, it's something that I and a massive team army of people are very proud of, the work that we did there. So it was sort of hard to, how, how do you beat that act? And then Ben Rimmer phoned me and said to me, what about housing? And I sort of said, oh, what about housing? Okay, it fits my social infrastructure rule, which I'd put on myself years ago. And then I learned a little bit about what the government was planning on doing. And how could I say no? What a fantastic opportunity to go and prove myself in a whole new sector and deliver fantastic outcomes that will have a real impact on the people that we're providing the homes for. So I'm really proud to be here and I'm very happy to be here. I've missed my Capella, my Capella team and I know there's some here tonight, so thank you. Um, but but uh, it is an opportunity that is a once in a lifetime situation that I just couldn't say no to. Chris Duff. Um, Chris is a property developer, unashamedly so, and traditionally pro uh, developers are by necessity driven by profit and a desire for loud shirts and other things. <laughs> and yet um, you seem to have um, very few of at least those things, Chris. Um, Chris has dedicated his intellect and his commercial um, nows to try and find a way to bring affordable and community housing to the market in a commercial way. So why this? Why aren't you building shopping centres and for sale commercial apartments? What is it in this space, Chris, that represents the personal challenge? Uh, thanks, Michael. I've got a linen shirt and sunglasses on, so if I had board shorts, I could be on the beach at, <laughs> beach at Noosa like all the other property developers in Australia. But. Um, so, thanks for the introduction and um, you know, I too would like to acknowledge the uh, traditional owners of the land upon which we meet. Um, and also, as sort of separate acknowledgement, I'd like to sort of congratulate the Andrews government and Ben and the team on the work they're doing in housing. Um, you know, it is a sort of really significant step forward, um, you know, and been very big supporter of the Andrews government, you know, across school building, infrastructure building, social housing building is infrastructure. So um, we think that's really terrific work. Um, so I guess I won't go through the sort of whole sort of career journey and everything else as to why I've ended up, why, why, where we've ended up, but I will talk about how we look at housing. Um, and we look at the housing continuum. So we look at sort of from homelessness, public housing, social housing, community housing, shared equity, 
rent to buy, full ownership, you know, and the different incomes to which those models are applicable. Um, and then we sort of look at saying, well, how can we, in private capital markets, so superannuation investors, banks, um, et cetera, how can we mobilise that capital um, into housing strategies for people that find housing quite difficult, you know? And housing's linked to income, right? You've got no income, you know, maybe homeless or really struggling, very little income, public housing, social housing, community housing, a bit more income, you own a home, probably a lot of income. Okay, so, and how can we develop various strategies that are investable for profit strategies for our supporters, the superannuation industry, for example. So, and profit's important to them because their role as organisations is to deliver returns to give their members a better retirement. So, they're not there like public capital is to just, um, you know, invest for potentially social outcomes or other outcomes. So. Um, so for-profit strategies, they're pretty moderate profits um, and the impact's important and the impact does drive a lot of capital into our strategies. But really where we've landed now is we've crossed uh, Melbourne and Brisbane now. We've got a portfolio of um, about 5,500 apartments. Um, we've got a couple of thousand of those apartments out for tender at the moment in Melbourne. Um, and we're partnering with the community housing sector for our build-to-rent portfolio. So we see build-to-rent um, as an asset class, as an opportunity to deliver housing for people that find housing really difficult. We don't see it as an opportunity to charge 20% more market rent because you've sort of got a day spa and a cigar room and a sort of really fancy pool, you know, in the building. So, so and that's an international observation. That's not something we've cooked up and we've seen more pension fund investors in North America, continental Europe, a little bit more now in the UK, where are they actually investing their capital and why are they attracted to lower income housing? Because it's very, it's highly stable, highly predictable cash flows over time for those investors. So, so we've developed models. We've got a team of 40 people in the office. Um, you know, we've had some good success with Australian Super and a couple of the other industry funds that are looking to partner with us now to be able to deploy their members' capital um, into housing strategies to help people that are, you know, finding housing pretty difficult. And a key part of that's been partnership with the community housing sector, okay? So to manage people who are on very low incomes, to partner with Housing Choices Australia, you know, in our example, um, to allow them to manage one in five dwellings, which will be for someone off the social housing waiting list, um, and then we'll sort of look after, you know, the other four tenants, but in a fully integrated model. So um, the social tenant will have the same access to our services in the same sort of build-to-rent context, so and trying to really sort of break down in a fully integrated housing model. Every fifth door will be a social door. Every fifth door will have exactly the same fit-out internally, so um, and we're sort of really trying to... Um, help upcycle people through housing as well. So it's really exciting for us. It's really exciting for our investors um, as well. And yeah, Excellent. yeah. Thanks, Chris. And and from our perspective, Chris, I think this really is taking us all into new territory. And we're enormously um, impressed, not just by the ambition, but by the fact that we've had a breakthrough. Um, our fourth panelist tonight. Um, um, shares a number of things with me, but most importantly, we both worked in Glasgow. Um, but Emma uh, came back to Melbourne and took on the job of um, city strategy at a time where the city of Melbourne has been growing exponentially. So these are growth rates that we really haven't seen since the 19th century. Uh, 1.3 million people in 10 years. Um, when when uh, Ben, your colleague, was uh, at the council at the helm in many ways. The city now, of course, has been, like all central cities, hit by the pandemic. So given the, uh, the investment the City Council made in a housing strategy, uh, Emma, where does social and affordable housing now fit within the Council's ambitions for Melbourne? How do we see it come to light? Great. Thanks, Michael. And look, I would say it's very centrally within the City of Melbourne now. We are, uh, we've gone on a bit of a journey, and um, Ben knows it well because um, I started my journey at the City of Melbourne with Ben where there wasn't much space within the political environment for us to engage in affordable housing. But through very um, determined work from many, there's a few people in the, in the audience today um, from the City of Melbourne, bringing together the evidence base of the need, which was startling and defined that we had a crisis to manage. And previously it had thought that we didn't have a role to play within that, but we are the Capital City Council and we advocate very strongly in that space. So once we had defined that need, we're in a really strong position and it did it turn out it was a change of Lord of Mayor as well and a change of council that suddenly felt they had a role to play 
And it also um, came alongside the homelessness issue that was very prevalent on our streets and something we all know should not be happening in a city like Melbourne or in a country like Australia. Um, so all of those things coming together really gave us the time and space to actually put forward a reason, a, an ambitious strategy for change. Um, and I, some of the people who I've worked with for a while, we, when we got it through in December 2020, the affordable housing strategy, which set out a really ambitious plan, both for us to develop on some of our sites, for us to advocate very strongly to state on things like inclusion rezoning to get a sustainable funding source and housing levies to get sustainable funding mechanisms through state to partner with, with the private market to support community housing um, sector. Um, when we got that through, we couldn't quite believe it. It had been quite a journey, but I would say that there was very bold ambition within the council at the time and, a, and just determined. We were determined. I think as well, I would say, you know, coming from the UK after 10 years, coming back into Melbourne, I've having had a baby, so I got a bit, bit sort of, I don't know, a little, even more determined to make a better world, and going into my first negotiation in Docklands and saying to the developer, and they were developing a very large-scale building, not, not one of a scale I'd seen for some time, and saying, so what, 30%, 30% affordable housing? Is that what you're going to deliver? How are you delivering that? And I'll never forget it because they all just went, what are you talking about? In London at that time, anything over 10 dwellings was delivering between 30 and 50% under the Mayor Ken Livingston, um, and it was just standard practice. Uh, it was all obviously supported by extremely good funding models and a community housing sector which was very strong, but you know, coming, into, coming back into a culture where it wasn't even, I don't know, considered that it was part of the private market option was quite concerning. Um, so look, I just wanted to acknowledge people, uh, Tanya, Bridey, Nina, Nanette, in the audience today for fighting the fight for a little while and also the courage of the council to take it on. And um, Bridie and her team, I think, did a fabulous job. And I think the city is asserting uh, the importance of affordable housing for a whole range of reasons, um, especially and including economic ones for the city. I wonder whether we can take up one of the themes that went through all of your comments, which is really about the legacy. Um, it's an enormous achievement to have raised the money and to put in place structures. What we all know is that the buildings are going to last a very long time. And um, the world is littered with good intent in the, in the physical environment. So um, Ben and Michelle, how within the budget constraints that we have, do we keep an eye on quality, on design, on integration within existing neighbourhoods? How do we avoid the community debates that divide rather than bring people together? That's a great question as well. Thank you, Michael. I one of the things that, that we say now at Homes Victoria is that we're creating homes that we would all live in. Uh, you know, we're, we're going to make sure they're tenure blind. We want to have a sense of place. Um, dwelling topology is really important. Um, we're going to have seven-star Nathan's, five-star Green Star. Um, electric charging facilities, they're going to probably have faster NBN than my house has. And um, we're working really closely with the Office of Victorian Government Architects, so they are working across us to make sure we get quality design. I don't think good quality design means, means expensive. You can actually still do good quality design on a budget. So it is really important that we provide places that people can go home to with a sense of pride and feel like that they're home. And, and I don't want to be involved in delivering homes that you can walk down the street and cross the road. And I've seen people do that with some of our existing estates. You know, I want it to blend in with the community. Okay. Um, look, I'll, I'll come back and we're going to give everyone the opportunity to ask questions or make comments. Um, and I think we recognise that um, there's a balance between investment in the existing physical stock as well as creating um, new supply, Michelle. Yes. yes, there was a $500 million announcement prior to the $5 billion announcement for upgrading existing housing, and that program is well underway. I'm sure we'll get a question on that later. So, but it is about raising the bar, and I don't, I don't think that expensive equals quality. I think you can have good quality design 
that looks good with open spaces at natural light. And, um, and as, you know, as I said, we are now saying we will only deliver homes that we would live in. So, um, I'm thinking about Van and Chris especially. Today and in the, yesterday in the media, we're already seeing community debates at the municipal level. And I don't want you to comment on projects. Um, but the apprehension that people have about the impact of these developments, um, what, what that will do to property values, the behaviours that people expect. What, is the, what are the ways from your perspective that you think we can um, build confidence in how this, this integration can work? Um, well, I've had a lot of first-hand experience in Existing communities, and there's sort of almost like the sort of fear that they're going to catch poverty from these people if they sort of move into their neighbourhoods and, and whatever else. And it's sort of it's sometimes it's very hard to break down. But um, our sort of solution for that, and you know, I don't think there's necessarily a golden bullet for it, um, is to just offer the fully integrated model. So you know, there'd be no reason. Um, you know, it's not something we sort of go and advertise like a pub. Uh, planning applications, just a planning application for a certain building, who's going to be living there is sort of really our business to sort of determine. So, uh, but we do think, you know, having a fully integrated model and um, Michelle just mentioned, it is very important to that. So we don't sort of have one building for people that have got a bit less money than the other people, the residents. So, um, and we think that also helps the people that are struggling a bit in housing and struggling a bit, you know, just in life, you know, to sort of be able to upcycle. So we're not, we're trying to avoid very high concentrations of very low-income housing in um, any of our projects. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, ben? Uh, I was just going to add to that. Um, I was just going to add to that that um, I don't think historically we've done a particularly good job of engaging where we're going to do development work. Um, and uh, <laughs> as Emma knows, that's something I... Um, railed against a bit when I was in a previous job. Um, and I think that actually came from good intention, right? We, we literally have had, as an organisation, so little money that we've really prioritised every dollar going into upgrades or maintenance or, or growth in housing stock. And I think we've cut corners historically on engagement. And uh, I, I think that's been counterproductive and I think we're now working very hard uh, to try and engage more and better and earlier. Um, there's kind of, I, I think there's kind of at least three levels of community response. Um, there's one level of community response which is actually quite professional, engaged, um, rational um, feedback for a development about, well, you know, I, I mean, I, I guess I think of this as like the professional council officer feedback. Uh, where there's actually some really good feedback about, well, why put the cross over there, why not put it there, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, then there's some, uh, there's, there's some community feedback which is really, we just want to understand what you're doing and why and when and how will, how will it impact us and what does that mean for traffic and all of that kind of stuff and that's completely reasonable and rational. And then there's a third level of community feedback which is uh, effectively pure... Um, pure dislike of having anyone who might be poor in a particular location. Um, there's a lot of language that you hear from people about, you know, I'm a complete supporter of social housing, but just not in this street, or, you know, that kind of language. And um, we, there is a, a definite extent to which that kind of logic has been blocking um, housing development, social housing development through the planning system. And that's why we asked the government to uh, give us some fast-tracking mechanisms through the planning system. It's frankly not to get over good quality engaged feedback and we have a very strong obligation under the new arrangements to do much better feedback and engagement with um, professional council officers, with local residents and that kind of stuff. But it does mean that we can't, uh, we're no longer going to let uh, an angry and um, disillusioned group of local residents stop a development for some months, some years. And to put this in very practical terms, I mean, there are lots of people in Victoria right now who want jobs on construction sites, and I currently, 
Pardon me. I currently have about $350 million worth of construction project that's waiting for a planning permit. And uh, I just don't think that's good enough. There are people on the waiting list who need housing. There are people who want construction jobs. There are companies who want to do the work to make those, uh, those projects come to life. And uh, the, you know, in some cases there are some legitimate questions and you know, um, good engagement um, backwards and forwards about how to make a project better. But in many cases it's not that. Uh, and we just need to be really clear about calling that out. I was just going to say that, um, you know, Melbourne's got a long history of um, uh, great designers, architects, landscape architects, urban designers engaging in, in projects such as this. And uh, just to uh, hats off to Ben for really going through procurement that enables really great people who are very experienced in housing to engage in a big build. Um, and um, Michelle as well. Um, because I think the procurement stage and getting those good thinkers in early getting the quality standard up, getting that recognised, tenure blind, really good quality, really good neighbourhood presence um, is essential for us to continue this build into the future. Uh, so both procurement, making sure that design expertise is central to, um, you know, and equal to the financials um, and really getting them in early and really pushing that so it doesn't cost more, that it's integrated and thought through. And Chris, you, you've been an amazing advocate of great design. Um, and then going through design review processes to keep us all honest, right? For that peer review at really key strategic points to really get the best value out of every dollar that Victoria is spending on this. So it's a legacy piece. Uh, <clears throat> this design question um, is, is, I think, immensely important. My fr uh, friend and colleague, Kirstine Mackay, who's the government architect in South Australia, is here tonight. So a week past on Saturday, we were at the nominations for the the National Awards, the Institute of Architects National Awards. And in the category we're in, the apartments before overlooking parklands park were priced at $3.7 million. Our units were $360,000. And the design effort that had gone in to the cheap apartments was actually fabulous. And it was all about what you were saying, about getting the thinking at the right stage. Um, Chris, as well as uh, investing in design, the other, thing, the other thing I'd want to open up is, um, is the capacity for us to see the housing problem in new ways. Tell us about the journey that Assemble has been on with capital markets, trying to convince them that a new asset class is possible, and how did you manage to get institutional investors into the space at such a scale? Um. Well, it has, it's been a long journey. The, the initial investment from Australian Super um, into our sort of build trend to own model, which is a home ownership pathway, that was about a two and a half year process um, with them and they acquired 25% of the, the management platform which will deliver and, and manage those assets. And really, um, compared to traditional uh, apartment development, the sort of returns that we're generating for the equity investors are probably one quarter to one third, um, but they're longer term, uh, more stable investment returns. So. Um, so there's seven, eight-year investments in that instance um, in our build-to-rent for social and affordable housing. We model 60-year holds for our investors, so we do very complex life-cycle investment models, and you know we're sort of generating you know high single-digit returns for those investors. And we did, had to start doing because the asset classes don't really exist in Australia, so we had to start doing asset class comparisons with market risk, right? So there's still even if you're below market and you sell, there's always going to be demand for housing that's 20 or 30 or 40 percent below market, there's still market risk there that at some point you might not have tenants. So we say, well, what are these investors otherwise investing in? So, you know, is it office buildings? Is it toll roads that are subject to potential market risk in toll usage, for example, and try to give some domestic comparisons and then also use international benchmarks and say, well, what, what are pension fund investors globally going into? So, so we were able to get the returns to a level that we thought was sufficient and comparable to other similar risk asset classes. And the reality is that the Australian in superannuation investors are looking for investable opportunities domestically. That's the fourth biggest pension fund market in the world. So we've got North America, Canada, Japan, Australia by dollars, right? So there's plenty of money in the system and they are looking for 
deeply impactful investment opportunities. So, but high single-digit returns for full greenfield risk, where you're going and letting, you know, we're going to be letting 1.2 billion bucks worth of construction contracts in the next 12 months to build out these portfolio projects. There's a lot of risk in that. So, the impact piece was fundamental to mobilising them into. So, the environmental and social impact of our projects and having a really strong governance framework around that was something that was really key to getting them off the bench into housing. I'm enormously impressed by the, the initial investment, the conceptual thinking that's behind the Assemble model. Um, Michelle, this is territory that you're familiar with. Um, oh, we use the term social infrastructure. I remember asking the head of AMP, social infrastructure, what that meant. And they said anything with a government cash flow. <laughs> so, but it's not this, quite how I see it. In that role, so it was prisons, <laughs> ports, whatever you can think of. But um, in this new environment, Michelle, what, what opportunities do you see for, um, for more innovative financing and delivery models than we might have been used to in the past? I, th I think there are a lot of opportunities at the moment. And I think our eyes are wide open to look at opportunities. And, and we welcome, welcome different ways of delivering outcomes. Um, we we want to get, um, I think the biggest challenge we have right now is speed to outcome. We, we really need to get, get moving quickly, so some of these models do take a bit longer, but I think that we have got some excellent results out of some of the models that we've gone through recently. They haven't yet been announced, so I can't probably talk about them too much. So, but, but um, when we get to that stage, I'm sure the Minister will be making an announcement on something that's happened recently. But we are um, looking at many different models. We've got the, I've got the private partnership stream under my wing as well. We had a, a tender close late last year for ready to build developments and we had 299 bids. So I came in on the 17th of December and I think we blew up the tender's VIC website. Um, and, and if you can imagine the team trying to unpack 299 bids um, and work through them where, you know, and, you know, the boss here is saying to me, why haven't you appointed contracts yet? I said, it took us six weeks to work out which were good bids and which weren't. But we are getting very close to start appointing some of those ready to, to develop sites that, that developers have had underway that may have been stalled during COVID or, or stalled for other reasons. So, so we have, you know, we, we are moving, which is good, but we are looking at many other ways of delivery as well. And, sorry, Chris? Sorry, just one other point on what's going to sort of, we think, really enhance the driver of private capital into housing is the resilience of the asset class during 2020, right? So, so you're a mall owner, like vicinity, what's your sort of, um, there's been no rent in your malls because they've all been shut, commercial office has been the same, so for people that might other toll roads, horrible. So for people that otherwise might invest in infrastructure or other real assets, then they've seen the resilience of housing and the ability to get government support for lower income housing in particular during really difficult times, really underwrite the resilience of housing as an asset class and that investment thematic for our investors in, you're investing in a fundamental human need, right? You're right at the bottom of Maslow's pyramid there. So, you know, you've got, you know, how shelter as a fundamental human need and our investors look at it and they say, it's unlikely that in 40 years, um, someone's going to need a two-bedroom apartment materially differently to what they need it today, right? So you go to Elwood and look at a 60s walk-up, and it's very similar in format and layout to the sort of housing that we deliver today. So there's always going to be a requirement for that, that shelter. So that's one of the big themes that we keep hearing from our investors. So I'm going to open this up to um, questions and comments um, in a couple of minutes. So if it can ask you to consider the, uh, the topics that might be of interest. Uh, ben, we've talked a lot about buildings and we've talked a lot about money, but at the end of this, it's actually the lives that occur within the buildings that matter, and they're the outcomes we really need to focus upon ultimately. Um, so in this, in this sense of um, t moving into new horizons and working different ways, um, your perspective, Ben, on the partnerships that you're building um, across the board, the, the service relationships, the way in which uh, people with often troubled circumstances can be supported as well as the physical stock? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think um, we've tended to focus on the dwelling, you know, the house, and not really on the home or what's required to keep a stable home. And... Uh, 
what that's meant is that we haven't looked at the different needs of different groups of people who might need housing support. And um, we're increasingly trying to do that. There's a lot of thinking, obviously, following the Royal Commission on Mental Health about how we better support people experiencing men mental health challenges with their housing needs. Uh, and, um, you know, even at a smaller scale, but a very important scale, uh, the important needs of young people leaving state care, for example, that are quite different from um, other housing needs experienced by other young people. So there's a lot of work for us to do in, in that area. And um, the, one of the most exciting things that's happened in the last 12 months is the From Homelessness to a Home program. You know, Michael talked about the fact that we, during the height of the pandemic, had uh, a lot of people um, who were formerly sleeping rough in accommodation for, uh, really for the first time, in some cases in many, many years. And so we've now, uh, the, the government has asked us to work with the sector and work with um, housing support partners to um, try and get uh, that cohort into stable ongoing housing. Um, we have uh, about 2,000 places in that program. Um, about 1,000 of those um, homes are uh, homes that either we've purchased in the last three or four months um, uh, or homes that uh, we already own. Um, but each home is going to be partnered with a support package, uh, partnered with um, connection with agencies that have skills and experience in particular needs of particular groups of people, whether that be alcohol and other drugs or or even kind of um, for an older cohort, we're working quite closely with Wintringham, for example, in this, uh, in this program. So that program is incredibly exciting. It, it really does reflect the government um, choosing to make a significant difference for a small number, a relatively small number, of people who need uh, the most significant levels of housing support in our community. And it's a direct result of the pandemic and the opportunities and issues that arose during the pandemic. And we're incredibly excited about um, delivering it. By, by its very definition, it's new work with um, new um, groups of people uh, in a challenging post-COVID environment. So it's not without its, um, it's not without its difficulties. It um, has given a number of us in the room um, some cause for lack of sleep in the last month or two. Um, but it's incredibly exciting and good work and I'm really proud of the work that the team are doing on that, on that topic. And I think it points to um, a broader issue, which is that we have, uh, we, ha we need to do more uh, for existing public housing tenants, but also frankly right across the community housing sector uh, to um, meet the needs and interests of our individual tenants and actually support them uh, in a better and more effective way. Yeah, I think, uh, Ben, we're all tremendously encouraged by homelessness to home and dealing with people often in most complex circumstances. I want to turn now to give you the opportunity to ask a question or make a comment. Um, can I ask you to identify yourself, please, and to uh, perhaps keep your comments um, and questions brief, as brief as you can? Yes, the man with the hat down the back. Sorry, we're going to give you a microphone, then. My name's Ben, thank you for your talk. Um, I can't remember where I read it, but I read somewhere that the uh, post-war Menzies Commission flats, so the estates, 30% of those were kept uh, vacant for a potential crisis. Uh, as far as I know, the, uh, uh, the COVID uh, crisis didn't fill any of those uh, Commission flat houses. So there's plenty of stock already existing that is vacant and it's good that it provides uh, industry for builders and architects, but uh, what about the stock that already exists? Okay. Ben? Um, nice to meet you, Ben. Um, uh, a, a really good question. So we do have, um, it's, it's true, the point you make is absolutely right, that during the COVID uh, crisis, we quite deliberately chose to um, reduce the amount of people living in some of our um, highest density high-rise towers 
And that was really a, a direct result of public health advice about the density of living circumstances in, in those places. The downside of that has been that we've had less housing to allocate in the last few months, uh, or really the last bit of last year. The upside of that is that we've... <coughs> Sorry, mate, it's quite hard to hear you up, up the front. Right. So um, we've also had, we've got about um, nearly a thousand people who are still living in hotels across Victoria uh, as a result of the COVID crisis and we're working, the Homelessness to a Home program is working as fast as we can to try and provide good, safe housing options for people in those circumstances. So the COVID crisis has been really profound for us um, and for a lot of people in the community in terms of how we manage all of these issues. It's been really challenging. Thank you. Yes, down in the front. I'll come to you. Hi, I'm Corey Memory. I'm a resident of the public at Carlton Housing Estate, and I'm also the spokes for the current. I got awarded the community champion for 2020 for the City of Melbourne last year at the COVID-19 Heroes, and I'm a spokesperson for the Public Housing Residents Network and the Save Public Housing Collective. Now, public housing is... Yeah, hold your, can you hold your microphone closer? Cl closer, oh, sorry. Public housing is charged at 25%, where the social housing is going to be at 30% rate. Now, a person such as myself, as a, on the job seeker, becomes $890 better off in public housing over a year. A single parent with a five-year-old is just under $1,500 better off over a year on, in public housing. And a single pensioner is $1,680 better off over a single year. Now, that could offset the energy costs for a family for the whole year. If the government is seriously involved in that, that 30% is way too much for an income. Now, affordable housing, 80% of market rent. Now, that's ridiculous. So on a property that's $375 a week, ends up 460 out of a pocket for a person like myself on JobSeeker, and that is including including rent assistance. Now, for 50, somebody who earns 52000 which is the limit on, on receiving affordable housing, $300 a week is actually 30% of their income. Now, if they are earning less than, less than that income on that rent, they are paying more than 30% per week. And, and, and if they've got a higher charge rent, they're still paying, and again, they're paying more than 30% rent. Now, haven't we learnt as well to stop selling state-owned assets, you know, like, it ends up costing everyone more. We need to abolish this concept of sociable, social and affordable housing and replace it with a better public housing, build, big build concept immediately and establish a public housing ombudsman. Now, the questions I have is how will this strategy help solve homelessness and waiting lists? I think it'll make things worse. And will the new properties that are being built have solar panels to help offset energy charges. So I think um, the first part was really a, a statement of opinion, Ben, but on the second question about assistance for homelessness and how this will deal with um, energy savings. Sure. So um, the, the, um, the direction that we're taking now is to strengthen public housing uh, in a way that hasn't been achieved in the last 30 years. And uh, the big housing build has a large number of new dwellings, but it also has, and through, the, through a different program, but it also has a significant injection of money into uh, public housing, ongoing maintenance and upgrade and things like that. Uh, and it helps to make public housing sustainable. And public housing being sustainable is absolutely central to our ability to provide good, good services to public housing residents across Victoria. It is the case that um, the, the community housing sector has a different financial model and gets support from the Commonwealth in ways that um, the, uh, the public housing system does not. And that makes it um, uh, the case that uh, growth in, the, in housing stock um, is uh, faster and cheaper and easier to achieve through the community housing system. 
And so what we've really done, we've, we've tried to get the best blend between both of those models going forward. And uh, we've really, um, the government has really chosen to invest very significantly in public housing across the last 12 months, more so than uh, at any other period in the last, uh, in the period, you know, going before this. And um, that's going to have a real be benefit. That's going to have a real impact. There are literally thousands and thousands of dwellings, not yet sufficient, I have to point out, but there are literally thousands and thousands of dwellings that are being upgraded and maintained in a better way because of that, uh, because of that additional funding. So it, it's a complicated question. There are lots of different views on all kinds of different perspectives about it. Um, but at the end of the day, we have way too few houses that are made available for people who are on very low incomes. And every single house that we put into play uh, that is designed for someone on a very low income is a person who's off the waiting list, a person who's perhaps out of homelessness, a person, you know, a victim survivor of family violence who might be able to have a safe and uh, secure home. And uh, this package is for you know, over the next little while, we're going to be doing 15,000 of those. And, you know, yesterday we did 18. And, um, you know, there were whole months of years gone by that we didn't do 18. New dwellings with new people moving into them, new opportunities to start a, a different life. I'll, I'll come back. Um, can I just say, no, uh, can I just say, I will speak to you afterwards about the community housing rent models. But no, I think he did. I think he did answer. So, so yes, we are doing solar panels, and all of our new dwellings will be seven-star neighbours and five-star green star. Yes. Hi, my name is Fa, and thank you for the lively discussion. My question is around the 5.3 billion dollar budget. While it's a great number, I'm just curious at what collaboration with private sector that the government is planning uh, earmark this budget for? I know like a billion is close to the spot purchase of apartments, but what about like the management? What's the most efficient way the government thinks to deploy and effectively manage this stock that's gonna come online effectively? So, um, Michelle might talk in a minute about the, the way we're working with the um, private sector about getting houses constructed quickly and getting um, construction activity happening in the middle of the, of the jobs crisis. Um, the, uh, the management of uh, and the other arrangements for the ongoing um, uh, support of the, of the housing that we're creating uh, in part is being delivered through the community housing sector and in part is being delivered through Homes of Victoria itself. And uh, we're looking to um, make sure that our own services are as good as they possibly can be, uh, that we provide as effective, and it's, it's a human rights issue, right? Like we need to provide um, effective and um, high quality services to our own tenants, uh, as well as working with the community housing sector, and in fact with partners like Assemble or, or other people, Nightingale, whoever, uh, where, it, where it's relevant on getting the best uh, ideas from other parts of the world as well, whether that be the private sector, the not-for-profit sector, England, Finland, or even Sydney, even, I guess, perhaps. Um, but Michelle might talk about um, uh, what we're doing on Street 4. Okay, so on, we do have a private partnerships um, section, and, and it is just under a billion dollars we're spending on purchasing homes. And we are purchasing six, uh, 596 homes, which are part of the Home to Homeless programs. Um, We've already put in offers for over that amount, so we're confident that we're going to get those um, settled soon and get people in them, which is which which, which is great. Um, and the other part of that was the RFP that we ran last year, where we got the 299 expressions of interest, and that ranges in developments that are ready to build. So, so one of the developments that we've already purchased will will be finished. Construction will be completed in May, and we'll get 20 dwellings come on online then. And then another one that we we recently um, invested in construction will start in May. So they're all through the different streams of the pipeline. Some have planning permits. Generally, they've got planning permits. And some of them, the developers are not necessarily happy to share because they, we might have bought 20 houses out of a 200 development building. 
so that that gave them enough money to get their get the get the because this is also about the economy and jobs. So we we want people to get jobs, and we, and and while I've got the microphone, I'm going to talk about gender equity. I was quite horrified to learn that 12% of women work in this construction property sector. That hasn't changed for 10 years. So, and we all know that women got hit hardest during COVID. They're the ones that lost their jobs first. You know, our over 50s women are the fastest growing homeless people, full stop. So we are encouraging all of our bidders, whether they be designers or whether they be builders, to um, really look at social procurement and in particular gender equity. And we are, we are um, grading it at 35% of every bid that comes our way, which well I think is higher than anyone else in government's doing, but it's really important to us. Uh, I think we should give a round of applause. That's fantastic. <laughs> look, uh, look we're, we're, we're almost out of time, and I, um, I want to give you a chance to, um, uh, to mingle and meet some of the guests here this evening. Um, unless there are any last comments from any of the panel. Um, can, I, can I say thank you for your fortitude? Um, M Pavilion have done an outstanding job yet again in a post-COVID environment in finding creative spaces in which we can meet and share, uh, um, and share points of view and debate public policy. Um, I'd first of all like to thank our uh, panelists this evening, uh, Michelle, Ben, Emma, Chris. Um, I, I'd especially like to thank the, um, the team at M Pavilion um, and the uh, Naomi Pilgrim Foundation for their ongoing interest and support of their sector in a whole range of ways. Um, please join with me. And, and can I just say before we actually finish, isn't it great to be in a situation where we're talking about how we can make the best of this and how we can deliver for everybody? We're no longer talking about why, we're talking about how we can do it best. So join with me in thanking these fantastic people during the day. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. This podcast comes to you from our 2020 season. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.